Brethren, I have a question for you this afternoon, and my question is this. Uh, I'm going to talk about a subject that is used a lot by theologians and mentioned in the Bible, but perhaps not fully understood by us. What is justification? And why is justification necessary? What does justification mean for you and me? It sounds like one of these rather vague terms, theological. Uh, it sounds almost uh, uh, as if uh, in some ways it's almost a kind of abrogation of God's way of life. What does, but what does it mean? The Bible uses that term. The basic problem is outlined in the book of Isaiah, and that is Isaiah 59. Let's begin there. Isaiah 59. Justification. Why do we have to be justified? Why do the scriptures talk about it? Isaiah 59 and verse 2, rather well-known verse. Verse 1 tells us that God hears our prayers, but verse 2, Isaiah says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, of course, this was to ancient Israel. This was not written initially to the church, but still there is an important point here. And that, human, that is that human beings are human beings. We have a physical nature, a carnal nature, a nature that is sinful. We struggle with sin. Isaiah 64, verse six, over the page, Isaiah 64 and verse six. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is are, there's an interesting description here, Isaiah 64, verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. A very poetic and a very colorful way of describing the human condition. The human condition is just that. It's human. It's sinful. We're just completing our study of the book of Ezekiel at Foundation Institute, and I won't go back there, but I'll reference the passage in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we've got Ezekiel online, of course, in FI Online, there's a wonderful vision, a very uh, descriptive vision of the book of, in the book of Ezekiel where he's, he, God shows him inside the temple in Jerusalem and he sees everything that's going on. And then in this vision, God's throne depicted on a kind of a platform. Uh, you, I imagine you've read that section of scripture. We're not gonna go all the way through it. But God's throne is depicted on a platform and God begins to take off and depart. And he goes eastward over toward Jericho. And in this spiritual vision, Ezekiel is shown that God is removing his presence from Jerusalem. Our God does not coexist with sin. So, why is justification necessary? Let's look at a few Old Testament scriptures before we go to the New Testament, which is where I'd like to spend most of the time. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. It is, of course, the chapter with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, but I'm not going to read the Ten Commandments. I want to read what follows the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. Paul read this, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are given by God, and look at the reaction of the people. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. It was dramatic, it was scary. The mountain shook, 
Smoke came off it as God gave these ten words, cardinal points of his law. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. They were scared, understandably so. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We're scared to death. Here is a righteous God, a perfect God, a sinless God, and we're the people of Israel and we're in his presence and it scares us to hear his voice. And of course, from that point forward, Moses' role becomes very important because apart from the Ten Commandments, Moses is the mediator for all of it. Every bit of the law, with the exception of the Ten Commandments, comes from God through Moses, or in some cases, from God through Moses and Aaron. Uh, then Moses' response here in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses' life is a study of him by itself. I'm sure there's at least one sermon there, maybe more than one. But the point being at this section, they couldn't stand in God's presence. They couldn't stand in his presence. They were scared. They heard his voice, but it frightened them. It wasn't just specific sins. It wasn't just a checklist. It was their sinful nature. It was that they were a physical people. And of course, the history is the history. You know the history of, the, uh, of ancient Israel. It didn't end well, did it? Although there's yet more to come. But it's a problem of sin. Sin is the problem. How do human beings who are physical, who are by their nature sinful, uh, come into the presence of God? Now, I want to look at a couple more of Old Testament scriptures before coming to the New Testament, because, of course, this is one of the things that changes drastically with the first coming of Jesus Christ with regard to the church. The whole framework changes. But let's look at Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, because I think this merits some explanation here. Leviticus 4 and verse 20. This is in the section about the ceremonial law. There's a series of offerings, animal sacrifices here. And actually, I was asked a question on this a number of years ago. Um, Leviticus 4 verse 20 is where I'd like to draw your attention. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering, thus he shall do with it. The priest shall make atonement for them. The priest brings the bull and makes atonement for them, for the people, and it shall be forgiven them. You ever thought about that? Let's read Leviticus 4 verse 26, a few verses down. He shall burn the fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, the sinning Israelite, concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. And the same thing in verse 31, Leviticus 4 verse 31. He removes the fat of this particular offering. The fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest makes atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And it says essentially the same thing again in verse 35. And then it says essentially the same thing in Leviticus 5 and verse 10. What does that mean? That we read in the New Testament about our sins being forgiven through Jesus Christ, and of course, that's true. There's a word used here for atonement, and it's a word that we're all familiar with. Every year in the fall, we get to that holy day that comes between 
the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles, very, very important holy day, which in English is referred to as the Day of Atonement. Now, you know what it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it is Yom Kippur or Yom HaKippurim. And it's the same word that's used here in Leviticus chapter 4, Kippur. It's the same word. I found an interesting quotation about this particular word, a study. It's about the Day of Atonement, and it's from a Jewish source. Let me give you the source before I begin reading it here. It's uh, www.hebrewversity.com, front slash deeper Hebrew meaning Yom Kippur. I'm going to read it to you. What is the deeper Hebrew meaning of Yom Kippur? Today at sunset will be the 10th of the Hebrew month of Tishri. And this signifies the beginning of the holiest day of the, new, of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. It is customary to translate Yom Kippur as a day of atonement, and it comes from the following biblical verse. And then this article quotes from Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm in verse 26, the 10th day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. There's a holy convocation. You afflict yourselves and you present an offering to the Lord. It's a day of atonement. And then the article goes on to say the initial Hebrew meaning of the root kiper, K-P-R or kof, pei, resh in the Hebrew, which Yom Kippur comes from, actually means to cover and can be found in the original Hebrew name for the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that mercy seat, seat that went on top with the two angels with their wings held out, the Ark of the Covenant called in the Hebrew Bible kaporet, or covering. So when we read about atonement in that section of the sacrificial law, the connotation is covering. Continuing with this article, the concept of covering in biblical Hebrew can be understood also in an abstract way as covering sins, meaning to grant atonement. Precisely as the English name for the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and sheds light on the decision to translate into English the Hebrew word kaporet, the covering of the ark, as mercy seat. Yom Kippur, kippur kippur, covering, removal of sin by covering. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews has a lot to say about this. This is one of these things that change in New Testament times. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. The book of Hebrews is wonderful. I love the book of Hebrews. I, uh, I know Mr. Johnson covers it uh, thoroughly at Foundation Institute. It's one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews keeps on saying the New Covenant is better. The New Testament arrangement is better. It's higher. It compares with the old arrangement. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. This was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, the system was still going on, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Isn't that an interesting statement? You brought an animal sacrifice and it didn't make you perfect with regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation the time of the institution of the new covenant, the founding of the church through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, same chapter, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, Hebrews uses that term over and over again, how much more 
shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a strong statement and worth thinking about. Verse 15, and for this reason he, Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, just like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, although of course it functions differently. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There's a promise under the new covenant. And dropping down again in this same chapter to verse 24, Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, an allusion to the Day of Atonement. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Allusions to a lot of holy days there. Of course, that's an allusion to the Feast of Trumpets, and we'll come to that momentarily. The Feast of Trumpets, in one sense, means something rather different for you and me than it does for the world. But let's keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10, where we get an even more definitive statement. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, the law foreshadows those ceremonies, those animal sacrifices. There was a typology there. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. It would have been done only once if they had been that effective, but they were not, of course. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then this enormously definitive statement here in verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Christ's sacrifice takes away sins. It cleanses out the conscience inside out. It gives people a new start. It has to do with justification. So I was looking around on the internet as I was doing a little bit of thinking and reading about this sermon and looking for material on the subject of justification. And you can imagine if you go onto the internet and you look for a search on justification, you come up with probably hundreds and hundreds of pages, lots of them. And a lot of it not that helpful and you've got to begin sifting out wheat and chaff. And then I suddenly realized there's a very good website that serves as a very good source of information on things biblical and things theological. It's called Life, Hope, and Truth. And in a sense, we're all part of it. Now, I wonder how many have read all the articles on Life, Hope, and Truth. I used to read them all when I was on the doctrine committee, but there are now some there that I, I haven't read. Uh, justification. Justification, article by John Foster, pastor of the Church of God Worldwide Association, titled, What is Justification? on Life, Hope, and Truth site. Definition, what is justification? The New Testament was preserved in the Greek language, and justification is translated from one of two Greek words. 
The first is dikaiosis. This word, quote, denotes the act of pronouncing righteous, justification, acquittal. Its precise meaning is determined by that of the verb dikaio, to justify, signifying the establishment of a person as just by acquittal from guilt. Quoting from Vine's expository dictionary of the Old and New Testament words. The other Greek word for justification is dikaioma. Vine says this word, quote, is a declaration that a person or a thing is righteous. The definition further signifies, quote, a sentence of acquittal by which God acquits men of their guilt. Acquittal, release. These Greek words mean that when God acquits and absolves us of all blame and guilt for our sins, we become just and innocent in his sight. Justification comes as a result of God's initiative toward us through his grace and by our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Life, Hope, and Truth article, What is Justification? Now, the New Testament mentions justification. I think it's actually that particular word is used, I think, four times in that form in the New King James Version. I believe about seven times in the NRSV Version. But the New Testament speaks of justification as an essential step in the process of salvation. What is justification? How do we conceive of it? Perhaps the most common um, illustration of what justification is for you and me it comes when we're sitting at our desks. I'm guessing most of us in this room, even if we don't type documents as part of our work, we type documents when we're sitting at home and we use a word processing process, word processing system. It used to be, what was it? I forget the old one that they used to have. Uh, Microsoft Word is ubiquitous these days. And when you sit down to type up your document, what do you do? You justify the margins. Do you want it left justified? You want it right justified? Or you kind of stretch it out and you're justified on both sides. And it's a small illustration of what justification is for us coming close to how we come into the presence of a holy and perfect God and we can stand in his presence. Just as you left justify your document or you right margin justify your document. How you come into that presence of God. There's a very important statement here from the Apostle Paul. When he began to go out to preach the gospel, and of course, as you know, in the book of Acts, he began to preach the gospel, first of all, to the Jewish people. Book of Acts is very interesting. You begin reading about uh, the gospel going to the Jewish people. And even at the end of the book of Acts, <coughs> the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions are still identified as Jews. But he begins to take the message of the gospel <coughs> out to his people, the Jewish people. And on his first evangelistic tour, many of the Bibles refer to it as a missionary journey. Evangelistic tour is a better term. In preaching to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 13, let's turn there, Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul had something very firm and definitive to say about Christian justification. Acts 13, I'm going to read quite a few verses here. He's out on this evangelistic tour. He begins as he always did in the synagogue, not always, you get to the end of the book of Acts and that it's sort of the door, it's kind of closed at that point. But in the early part of the book of Acts, he begins with the Jews and the others who are non-Jewish but who come into the fellowship of the synagogues. Acts 13 and verse 
14, Acts 13, verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, Asia Minor, Turkey, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent, said to them, said to them, sent to them, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I've always found this interesting because this doesn't happen in a synagogue service today. Judaism has changed a lot from the first century. I don't think you can go into a synagogue service today and just say, oh, I've got a word of, of wisdom. I've got something I'd like to share with everybody. It doesn't work that way. Judaism became much more scripted in the interim. But anyway, Paul is invited to say something. Have you got a word of exhortation? Verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people uh, who, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And he goes through much of the history. He did this often, you know the history. But I've got something to tell you here. I've got something to tell you which is a part of the history and it's been fulfilled very recently. It's dropping down to verse 23. Verse 23. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. He mentions Jesus here. This was the part that they hadn't heard. Like I say, I don't think you could go into a synagogue in the United States or Israel these days and suddenly jump to your feet and preach, pre preach Jesus. But back then it was possible. Uh, verse 29. I'm going to read a little bit more in this chapter. Verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled everything that was written concerning him, Christ, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. And then a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Dropping down to verse 36. David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with the fathers and saw corruption. So that psalm is not talking about David, it's talking about someone else who is to come from the lineage of David. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. His body didn't de decompose in the grave. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And then here in verse 39, I read a lot of scripture here, but I want to get to verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses would not justify you. You're justified through Jesus Christ, a very definitive statement. And of course, you and I are justified through Jesus Christ. That's what Christ does for us. A number of years ago, I had to take a class, um, actually it was across town here, at a, a seminary based here in Dallas. And there was a very noted New Testament professor. And he was one of these people who, um, some, let's put it this way, some theologians are very quick to see contradictions in the scripture. 
The scripture says this here, and the scripture says this there, and you can't really harmonize it. It's not possible. This particular gentleman, uh, who was, uh, I think, quite well published, he, did, he said that there are three Pauls. The Apostle Paul has three identities. The one in the book of Acts, the other one when he preached to the Jews, and the other one when he preached to the non-Jews. And I've often thought about that. Poor Paul, you know, he probably needed a shrink. Couldn't figure out what he believed. Three Pauls, and he gives different messages all over the place. What a model. He couldn't figure it out, especially on the subject of justification. Romans 2, verse 13. Romans 2, verse 13. What did Paul believe about justification? What are we to believe about justification? Romans 2, verse 13. Just interrupting the context here. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Doers of the law will be justified. And then just over the page, Romans 3, verse 20, Romans 3, verse 20, Paul says something, and poor Paul, he really did need his shrink, because look what he says here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, no flesh justified by law-keeping. So, what about justification? What does Paul say about this? Romans chapter 5. Let's keep going in the book of Romans just a little bit. Romans chapter 5. And let's pick it up in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. You know, brethren, when we read through some of these things that Paul wrote in this uh, book of Romans, Romans is said to be the statement of Paul's theology. But you and I have a great advantage, and that is that in God's church, we keep the holy days. And as we go through the annual cycle of holy days, we can understand a lot more about this process of justification and the whole chain of events that leads to salvation as part of God's family. Romans 5 and verse 6. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So what he did was unusual and exceptional. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That, of course, is one of the reasons why Church of God people don't have crosses on the walls of their homes. A couple of reasons. First of all, the cross is probably not an accurate emblem anyway. It doesn't appear to have been, you know, a T-shaped instrument. It appears to have been more of a, of a uh, vertical but also, right, what it says right here in verse 10, what we just read, we're saved by his life and we look forward to that salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. Justification by his blood, salvation by his life. Spring holy days, fall holy days. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. So, we come to the spring, we come to the Passover, we gratefully acknowledge what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, something we can't do on our own. 
We take the Passover, we acknowledge his sacrifice, we acknowledge that he's justified you, that he's justified me. He makes it possible for us to walk in newness of life. And then, of course, a few weeks later, seven weeks later, approximately, we come to the festival of Pentecost when God gives a little bit of his life essence to you and to me so that we can walk differently. We keep the Passover, and then, of course, we keep seven days of unleavened bread, God's part in the process and our part in the process. You and I are New Covenant Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. We acknowledge that we're justified through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we come to the next holy day, the Feast of Trumpets, in which we look forward to life from him, life being given to us through Jesus Christ. And did you ever stop to think that the Feast of Trumpets has a different meaning for us from the meaning it has for the world? What does it mean for the world? For the world, it means the return of Jesus Christ. Visibly, every eye will see him, and the course of events in the world is going to change dramatically. For us, it means the granting of that gift that we know is promised. The Feast of Trumpets, life from him. But the point here is that we can't just be justified and then not move on. Justification is the beginning of the process. Justification is what allows you to get your Microsoft Word document just the way you want it to look. It allows you to come close to God and then to begin walking a different way of life. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But we don't stop. We keep walking. Now, of course, when we think about the subject of justification, I think it's a subject that maybe we don't talk about all that much in the Church of God, but it's a very important subject. Uh, we stop and we think about it, and we realize that there are those out there who use this term and put an emphasis in it, and they lead into a message of do nothing, Christianity. Do nothing, Christianity. There's a lot of discussion of the subject of justification and the subject of faith in the New Testament. You ever stop to ask yourself, I've been thinking about this recently, this whole concept of having faith in Jesus and then just carrying on as if nothing had happened. If you could get in a time capsule and go back to the first century and ask Jews in the first century what it, what it would have meant to confess belief in Messiah, to have faith, and was that concept of do-nothing religion even present back then? I don't think so. I think the concept of confessing belief in God implied follow-through. So let's take a look at this. What does the New Testament say about this? Because again, some commentators say there's a contradiction here. Paul and James, Paul and James, the great heavyweight theological contest, and out they come out of their two corners and they begin to fight it out. So justification by faith or justification by works. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
Paul is making a point here, and a very important one. How are we justified? We're justified by faith, Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by things that he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scriptures say? Now, this is quoted from uh, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You remember the scene. We're not going to go back there. God brings him outside. He says, look up at the stars. So Abraham turns his head upward and he looks at the stars and God tells, to him, tells him, this is what your offspring is going to be like. And it must have, you know, boggled his mind. Well, this is impossible. She's too old. I'm too old. And then the scripture goes on, as we just read, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Sometimes God specializes in the impossible, doesn't he? Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You've done th something for someone, and you've got to be paid for it. But what's the cost of justification? Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And Paul goes on to talk about Abraham being justified before the time that he was circumcised. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. Christian justification from the sacrifice of his blood, as we just read in Romans chapter 5. Now let's drop down a little bit here in Romans uh, chapter 4 to verse 13. Romans 4 verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was given certain promises. The entire legal system was not even given yet. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You can't earn the promises through the law. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law illustrates what sin is. It shows you where you've gone wrong. It shows you how you've got to replenish your tank, as we heard in the sermonette. Verse 16, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I made you a father of many nations. Paul is doing here what he often did, trying to knit together different branches of the church, different nationalities, the Jews and the non-Jews. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Just as Abraham came outside and God made him look up at the stars, he said, you're going to have offspring as numerous as this. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and not being weak in the faith, in faith he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. It says that he was 99 years old when Sarah conceived. He was about 100 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. 
and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also to, able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans describes Abraham as the father of the faithful. He had this amazing experience being brought outside and being told, no, the story is not over. You're going to have the son of promise. Our God specializes in the impossible. He likes to do those things. We know he's done that in our lives as well. Uh, verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Verse 25, he was raised because of our justification. It's actually an ongoing process. He was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God, the Father, and that is there for our justification. I'm going to quote from Mike Bennett's article. Again, you can find this on Life, Hope, and Truth. It's a good article. What is living faith? What kind of faith was it that Abraham had that justified him? What is living faith? Living faith is the kind of faith God wants us to have. What is living faith? How do we receive faith? How do we demonstrate and grow in living faith? How do we avoid having a dead faith? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm going to read certain parts of it. From He quotes from Hebrews chapter 11, but I'll drop down to uh, getting beyond Hebrews 11 verse 6. We grow in faith by studying the Bible and seeing what God has done in the past, what he promises for the future. It requires that we diligently seek him and strive to be like him. But can we just work up faith or will ourselves to have faith? Where does faith first come from, according to the Bible? How does it save us? The Apostle Paul wrote about the awesome gifts God has given to those who follow in Jesus' steps. And then it quotes Galatians 2, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse, uh, even the seed of faith is God's gift. Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The next verse causes some confusion, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, verse 9. No amount of works can earn us forgiveness or any of the gifts of God. They come from his grace and his mercy. But does that mean that good works are not an important part of the Christian life? Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Living faith, it's a very good description of our way of life. It is living faith. And I recommend that article. All right, now, let's go to the other section of the New Testament that talks about how we are justified. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I remember at Ambassador College in General Epistles class, the man who taught the class went through this, I think, reasonably thoroughly. And uh, I learned quite a bit from this. James has some things to say about justification as well. Some would conclude James and Paul are irreconcilable. But let's take a moment and think about this. James 2, verse 14. James asks the following question. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what use is it? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When you read what James has to say about justification by works in James 2, and what Paul has to say about justification by faith in the book of Romans, and you read them closely and you begin to get the impression that the challenges coming against the true faith were really quite different challenges. But let's keep on reading. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Fine, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Doesn't place us in terribly good company if we have that kind of belief. But don't you want to know, oh foolish man, empty-headed man, that faith without works is dead. We quote it a lot. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Don't you see that faith was working together with his works and his by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Wait a second, didn't we just read that in Romans? Wasn't it the same quotation? Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. James is quoting it to highlight the fact if you have, if you have faith, you do something. The apostle Paul quoted the same scripture to say you can't be justified by your works. He was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Paul and James, we got a big problem here. We need to appoint a subcommittee. We need to appoint a study group and get it figured out. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Verse 25, Rahab the harlot justified by works. She received the messengers and sent them out another way. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. When you take time to look at these two passages, which some say are an absolutely irre irreconcilable contradiction, think about it for a moment. Think about it. The Apostle Paul is facing down a set of challenges against the true faith. And the challenge boils down to this. It's a kind of a spiritual pride. I think we can understand it in God's church a little more clearly if we imagine the following scene. Coming in before God, in God's presence, and saying, God, you've got to accept me. Look at all the things that I've done. I rest every week on the Sabbath day. I'm faithful to my spouse. I've never killed anybody. I treat people with kindness. I tithe. I do all of these other good things. You've got to accept me for everything that I've done. When we think about that and then we think about the Pharisee, you remember the Pharisee and the publican? I put that in my notes this morning and realized this is relevant. It's Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18. You've got these two fellows who, you get the story of it, the Pharisee who says, you know, uh, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like other people. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And he's kind of beating his chest and saying, I'm such a righteous individual. And then Jesus talks about the publican who hangs his head in shame and says, God, be merciful to be a sinner. And it uses the word justification. Which one is more justified? So what is Paul combating when he says that we're justified by faith and not by our works? If it's our works that earn anything, you don't earn much of anything. 
not in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul is combating a kind of a spiritual pride, just like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I'm so righteous, God, you're obligated. And Paul says, no, God is not obligated to do anything of the kind. God gives you your justification as a free gift through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Apostle James is they're kind of back to back. They stand back to back in defense of the true faith. And James is saying, okay, you believe things? All kinds of people believe things. It's one thing to believe things. It's another thing to act on things. We can have intellectual assent to something. We can believe something intellectually with no follow-through. And James says, all you got is intellectual assent. It counts for very little. I want to quote a little bit. I'm not much of a fan of uh, Bible commentaries, but William Barclay, uh, in his commentary on the general epistles in the book of James, actually has some pretty good comments here. He's commenting on James chapter 2, uh, and I'll read just a little bit of it, and for Dora, who's up in the... Uh, uh, in the trans translating booth, I'm on page 72. You might have William Barclay's commentaries at home. They're quite useful. Uh, Barclay has some interesting things there. James 2, he says, it's a passage which we must take as a whole before we look at it in parts. It's so often used in an attempt to show that James and Paul were completely at variance. It's apparently Paul's emphasis that a man is saved by faith alone and that deeds do not come into the process at all. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, because by works of the law no one shall be justified. It's often argued that James is not simply differing from Paul, but he's flatly contradicting him. This is a matter we must investigate, says Barclay. And then on the next page, he says, the fact remains that James reads as if he were at variance with Paul. In spite of everything that we've said, Paul's main emphasis is upon grace and faith and James upon action and works. But this must be said, what James is condemning is not Paulinism, but a perversion of it. The essential Pauline position in one sentence was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But clearly the significance we attach to this demand will entirely depend on the meaning we attach to believe. There are two kinds of belief. And again, I've often wondered, what did people in the first century believe, understand with the use of the word belief? Did they think of something, just an intellectual assent and nothing more? There is belief which is purely intellectual, Barclay says. For instance, I believe that the square on the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle equals the sum of the squares on the other two sides. And if I had to, I could prove it. But it makes no difference to my life and living. I accept it, but it has no effect upon me. There is another kind of belief. I believe that five and five make 10, and therefore I will resolutely refuse to pay more than 10 pence for two five penny bars of chocolate. I take that fact not only into my mind, but into my life and action. What James is arguing against is the first kind of belief, the acceptance of a fact without allowing it to have any influence upon life. The devils are intellectually convinced of the existence of God. They, in fact, tremble before him, but their belief does not alter them in the slightest. What Paul, was, what Paul held was the second kind of belief. For him to believe in Jesus meant to take that belief into every section of life and to live by it. And then over the page, 
He's got another interesting comment. James begins with the professing Christian, the man who claims to be already forgiven and in a new relationship with God. Such a man, James rightly says, must live a new life for he is a new creature. He's been justified. He must now show that he's sanctified. With that, Paul would have entirely agreed. And then he goes on to say, I think this is rather well said, the fact is that no man can be saved by works, but equally no man can be saved without producing works. We have two apostles here. They're back to back. One is saying, if you in your spiritual pride think that you've earned your way into God's favor, you got it all wrong. And I assume that there must have been someone, some there in Rome who interpreted it that way. And the other one is saying, if you assume that your intellectual assent to something without any follow-through makes you into a Christian, you've got it all wrong. The two of them stand back to back in defense of the true faith. I just want to comment briefly uh, on, uh, no, let's, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you he made alive which were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead in your sins if you don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then move on. It's that justification that makes it possible for people to move forward. It's an ongoing process. It happens for you and me every day. We're justified. We're justified on a regular basis. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. Here's a scripture that we read at the Passover. 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, let's read the first couple of verses in the next chapter. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's ongoing. So a question, when was the last time you asked God, you thank God for having justified you through Jesus Christ? It's an important question. It's an important part of the chain of salvation. The whole process of salvation is something that we can understand through the holy days. Ongoing justification, holy justification, unearned, an essential link in the process of salvation. As we go through the annual holy days, we come to the Passover every year in the spring, and we accept the gift that God has given us, the gift of forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, what follows? Seven days of unleavened bread. We don't just take the Passover and then stop. It's the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process, the justification that takes place. And then our response. And then we come to the festival of Pentecost when God pours out of his spirit and gives us a little part of the life essence that is of God himself. And then finally, we get to the Feast of Trumpets. Finally, we get to the Feast of Tabernacles. We get to the Feast of Trumpets and the return of Jesus Christ. And he gives us that unearned gift of life in God's kingdom. It's one chain. It begins with justification. Romans chapter 8, wrap it up here. Romans 8, 
verses 28 through 31. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. There's so much that we can understand about this entire process and about what it is that God does for us through Jesus Christ because we keep God's holy days. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He was predestined there would be a group of people in the name of Jesus Christ standing before God and serving him to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The one who began the process granting us justification through his son, Jesus Christ, completes it with our part, with God's part, with the contribution of Jesus Christ as he allows us to stand before him and eventually to inherit the gift of eternal life that he holds out for us. Good afternoon, happy Sabbath to everybody. I just wonder about the sequence of the um, hymns before I get up to speak, God will see us through. <laughs> That's often how I feel before I teach my classes. God will see me through. And I would like to assure everybody as a witness to the fact that Mr. Meeker did speak at the etiquette dinner. In fact, I think he spoke in English but we had a very good etiquette dinner. Good afternoon, welcome to everybody. I know we've got some visitors here in town. It was a little different when we've got people seated upstairs. We have five weeks to go for Foundation Institute. It's amazing how quickly time goes, but we are approaching the end of this rather unusual school year, which began in January and goes until mid-August. Graduation is on August 15th. And of course, then we have a rather quick turnaround with the ministerial conference in the middle. Uh, we uh, are beginning right at the end of August. I believe that's uh, August 29th for our orientation. We have 14 that we've applied, uh, we've accepted so far, and applications are still open. However, we are uh, probably at about our capacity on housing. So technically, the applications are open, but uh, housing is uh, probably not available. So uh, we don't know if anyone else would express interest at this point. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, Please keep in mind all of the travels coming up in the fall. There's a lot to come up and a number of ministers are hoping to undertake international travel once again. Uh, things open and close with regard to the coronavirus uh, in different places. I'm hoping to get to the Dominican Republic for the first time in two years. I should be there for a Feast of Trumpets. Uh, if you check the calendar for this year, Feast of Trumpets is on a 
Tuesday, I believe. Uh, Monday is Labor Day, so it's an unusual weekend. It's Sabbath, Sunday, Labor Day, then Feast of Trumpets. So I'm hoping to get out to uh, our little group in the Dominican Republic, and there are a couple of uh, individuals there expressing interest in the church and perhaps in being baptized, so we'll see how all that goes. Uh, my own plans call for me to go to El Salvador for the first half of the feast and Peru for the second half of the feast, and I keep checking on the internet about getting between the two countries. And um, I wonder if any of you have been through this in the last couple of weeks, but the flight schedules are changing from day to day, especially some of the other airlines, perhaps not so much the US-based airlines, but the flight schedules keep on changing. Over the last month or so, I've gotten online and thought, oh, that's how I'm gonna get between the two countries. And a day or two later, that particular flight is gone. So uh, I'm probably not the only one going through that experience. So prayers that everything would go well uh, as we approach the uh, fall holy days and the people, ministers and members would be able to travel easily would be, would be appreciated. And of course, that we would all stay in good health. Brethren, I have a question for you this afternoon, and my question is this. Uh, I'm going to talk about a subject that is used a lot by theologians and mentioned in the Bible, but perhaps not fully understood by us. What is justification? And why is justification necessary? What does justification mean for you and me? It sounds like one of these rather vague terms, theological. Uh, it sounds almost uh, uh, as if uh, in some ways it's almost a kind of abrogation of God's way of life. What does, but what does it mean? The Bible uses that term. The basic problem is outlined in the book of Isaiah, and that is Isaiah 59. Let's begin there. Isaiah 59. Justification. Why do we have to be justified? Why do the scriptures talk about it? Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Rather well-known verse. Verse 1 tells us that God hears our prayers, but verse 2 Isaiah says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, of course, this was to ancient Israel. This was not written initially to the church, but still, there is an important point here. And that, human, that is that human beings are human beings. We have a physical nature, a carnal nature, a nature that is sinful. We struggle with sin. Isaiah 64, verse 6, over the page, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Isaiah tells us that our righteousnesses are, there's an interesting description here, Isaiah 64, verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away a very poetic and a very colorful way of describing the human condition. The human condition is just that. It's human. It's sinful. We're just completing our study of the book of Ezekiel at Foundation Institute, and I won't go back there, but I'll reference the passage in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we've got Ezekiel online, of course, in FI Online, there's a wonderful vision, a very uh, descriptive vision of the book of, in the book of Ezekiel where he's, he, God shows him inside the temple in Jerusalem. 
and he sees everything that's going on. And then in this vision, God's throne depicted on a kind of a platform. I imagine you've read that section of scripture. We're not going to go all the way through it. But God's throne is depicted on a platform and God begins to take off and depart and he goes eastward over toward Jericho. And in this spiritual vision, Ezekiel is shown that God is removing his presence from Jerusalem. Our God does not coexist with sin. So why is justification necessary? Let's look at a few Old Testament scriptures before we go to the New Testament, which is where I'd like to spend most of the time. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. It is, of course, the chapter with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, but I'm not going to read the Ten Commandments. I want to read what follows the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. Paul read this. The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, are given by God. And look at the reaction of the people. Now all the people witness the thunderings the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. It was dramatic. It was scary. The mountain shook. Smoke came off it as God gave these ten words, cardinal points of his law. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. They were scared. Understandably so. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We're scared to death. Here is a righteous God, a perfect God, a sinless God, and we're the people of Israel and we're in his presence and it scares us to hear his voice. And of course, from that point forward, Moses' role becomes very important because apart from the Ten Commandments, Moses is the mediator for all of it. Every bit of the law, with the exception of the Ten Commandments, comes from God through Moses, or in some cases, from God through Moses and Aaron. Uh, then Moses' response here in verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses' life is a study of him by itself. I'm sure there's at least one sermon there, maybe more than one. But the point being at this section, they couldn't stand in God's presence. They couldn't stand in his presence. They were scared. They heard his voice, but it frightened them. It wasn't just specific sins. It wasn't just a checklist. It was their sinful nature. It was that they were a physical people. And of course, the history is the history. You know the history of, the, uh, of ancient Israel. It didn't end well, did it? although there's yet more to come. But it's a problem of sin. Sin is the problem. How do human beings who are physical, who are by their nature sinful, uh, come into the presence of God? Now, I want to look at a couple more of Old Testament scriptures before coming to the New Testament, because, of course, this is one of the things that changes drastically with the first coming of Jesus Christ with regard to the church. The whole framework changes. But let's look at Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, because I think this merits some explanation here. Leviticus 4 and verse 20. This is in the section about the ceremonial law. There's a series of offerings, animal sacrifices here. And actually, I was asked a question on this a number of years ago. Um, Leviticus 4 verse 20 is where I'd like to draw your attention. 
And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering, thus he shall do with it. The priest shall make atonement for them. The priest brings the bull and makes atonement for them, for the people, and it shall be forgiven them. You ever thought about that? Let's read Leviticus 4 verse 26, a few verses down. He shall burn the fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, the sinning Israelite, concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. And the same thing in verse 31, Leviticus 4 verse 31. He removes the fat of this particular offering. The fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest makes atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. And it says essentially the same thing again in verse 35. And then it says essentially the same thing in Leviticus 5 and verse 10. What does that mean? that we read in the New Testament about our sins being forgiven through Jesus Christ, and of course, that's true. There's a word used here for atonement, and it's a word that we're all familiar with. Every year in the fall, we get to that holy day that comes between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles, very, very important holy day, which in English is referred to as the Day of Atonement. Now, you know what it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it is Yom Kippur, or Yom HaKippurim, and it's the same word that's used here in Leviticus chapter 4, kiper. It's the same word. I found an interesting quotation about this particular word, a study. It's about the Day of Atonement, and it's from a Jewish source. Let me give you the source before I begin reading it here. It's uh, www.hebrewversity.com, front slash deeper Hebrew meaning Yom Kippur. I'm going to read it to you. What is the deeper Hebrew meaning of Yom Kippur? Today at sunset will be the 10th of the Hebrew month of Tishri. And this signifies the beginning of the holiest day of the, new, of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. It is customary to translate Yom Kippur as a day of atonement. And it comes from the following biblical verse. And then this article quotes from Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm in verse 26, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. There's a holy convocation. You afflict yourselves and you present an offering to the Lord. It's a day of atonement. And then the article goes on to say the initial Hebrew meaning of the root kiper, K-P-R or kof, pei, resh in the Hebrew, which Yom Kippur comes from, actually means to cover and can be found in the original Hebrew name for the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that mercy seat? Seat that went on top with the two angels with their wings held out, the Ark of the Covenant, called in the Hebrew Bible, kaporet, or covering. So when we read about atonement in that section of the sacrificial law, the connotation is covering. Continuing with this article, the concept of covering in biblical Hebrew can be understood also in an abstract way as covering sins, meaning to grant atonement. Precisely as the English name for the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and sheds light on the decision to translate into English the Hebrew word kaporet, the covering of the ark, as mercy seat. Yom Kippur, kippur kipper, covering, removal of sin by covering. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews has a lot to say about this. This is one of these things that change in New Testament times. Hebrews 9 verses 9 and 10. 
The book of Hebrews is wonderful. I love the book of Hebrews. I, uh, I know Mr. Johnson covers it uh, thoroughly at Foundation Institute. It's one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews keeps on saying the New Covenant is better. The New Testament arrangement is better. It's higher. It compares with the old arrangement. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. This was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, the system was still going on, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Isn't that an interesting statement? You brought an animal sacrifice and it didn't make you perfect with regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation the time of the institution of the new covenant, the founding of the church through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, same chapter, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, Hebrews uses that term over and over again, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a strong statement and worth thinking about. Verse 15, and for this reason he, Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, just like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, although of course it functions differently. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There's a promise under the new covenant. And dropping down again in this same chapter to verse 24, Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, an allusion to the Day of Atonement. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Allusions to a lot of holy days there. Of course, that's an allusion to the Feast of Trumpets, and we'll come to that momentarily. The Feast of Trumpets, in one sense, means something rather different for you and me than it does for the world. But let's keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10, where we get an even more definitive statement. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, the law foreshadows those ceremonies, those animal sacrifices. There was a typology there. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? It would have been done only once if they had been that effective, but they were not, of course. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then this enormously definitive statement here in verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. 
Christ's sacrifice takes away sins. It cleanses out the conscience inside out. It gives people a new start. It has to do with justification. So I was looking around on the internet as I was doing a little bit of thinking and reading about this sermon and looking for material on the subject of justification. And you can imagine if you go onto the internet and you look for a search on justification, you come up with probably hundreds and hundreds of pages, lots of them. And a lot of it not that helpful and you've got to begin sifting out wheat and chaff. And then I suddenly realized there's a very good website that serves as a very good source of information on things biblical and things theological. It's called Life, Hope, and Truth. And in a sense, we're all part of it. Now, I wonder how many have read all the articles on Life, Hope, and Truth. I used to read them all when I was on the doctrine committee, but there are now some there that I, I haven't read. Uh, justification. Justification, article by John Foster, pastor of the Church of God Worldwide Association, titled, What is Justification? on Life, Hope, and Truth site. Definition, what is justification? The New Testament was preserved in the Greek language, and justification is translated from one of two Greek words. The first is dikaiosis. This word, quote, denotes the act of pronouncing righteous, justification, acquittal. Its precise meaning is determined by that of the verb dikaio, to justify, signifying the establishment of a person as just by acquittal from guilt. Quoting from Vine's expository dictionary of the Old and New Testament words. The other Greek word for justification is dikaioma. Vine says this word, quote, is a declaration that a person or a thing is righteous. The definition further signifies, quote, a sentence of acquittal by which God acquits men of their guilt. Acquittal, release. These Greek words mean that when God acquits and absolves us of all blame and guilt for our sins, we become just and innocent in his sight. Justification comes as a result of God's initiative toward us through his grace and by our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Life, Hope, and Truth article, What is Justification? Now, the New Testament mentions justification. I think it's actually that particular word is used, I think, four times in that form in the New King James Version, I believe about seven times in the NRSV Version. But the New Testament speaks of justification as an essential step in the process of salvation. What is justification? How do we conceive of it? Perhaps the most common um, illustration of what justification is for you and me it comes when we're sitting at our desks. I'm guessing most of us in this room, even if we don't type documents as part of our work, we type documents when we're sitting at home and we use a word processing process, word processing system. It used to be, what was it? I forget the old one that they used to have. Uh, Microsoft Word is ubiquitous these days. And when you sit down to type up your document, what do you do? You justify the margins. Do you want it left justified? You want it right justified? Or you kind of stretch it out and you're justified on both sides. And it's a small illustration of what justification is for us coming close to how we come into the presence of a holy and perfect God and we can stand in his presence. Just as you left justify your document or you right margin justify your document. How you come into that presence of God. There's a very important statement here from the Apostle Paul, 
when he began to go out to preach the gospel, and of course, as you know, in the book of Acts, he began to preach the gospel, first of all, to the Jewish people. The book of Acts is very interesting. You begin reading about uh, the gospel going to the Jewish people. Even at the end of the book of Acts, <coughs> the apostle Paul and his traveling companions are still identified as Jews. But he begins to take the message of the gospel <coughs> out to his people, the Jewish people. And on his first evangelistic tour, many of the Bibles refer to it as a missionary journey. Evangelistic tour is a better term. In preaching to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 13, let's turn there, Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul had something very firm and definitive to say about Christian justification. Acts 13, I'm going to read quite a few verses here. He's out on this evangelistic tour. He begins, as he always did, in the synagogue. Not always. You get to the end of the book of Acts, and that is sort of the door. It's kind of closed at that point. But in the early part of the book of Acts, he begins with the Jews and the others who are non-Jewish but who come into the fellowship of the synagogues. Acts 13 and verse 14. Acts 13, verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, Asia Minor, Turkey, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent, said, to them, said to them, sent to them, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I've always found this interesting, as this doesn't happen in a synagogue service today. Judaism has changed a lot from the first century. I don't think you can go into a synagogue service today and just say, oh, I've got a word of, of wisdom. I've got something I'd like to share with everybody. It doesn't work that way. Judaism became much more scripted in the interim. But anyway, Paul is invited to say something. Have you got a word of exhortation? Verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people uh, who, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And he goes through much of the history. He did this often. You know the history. But I've got something to tell you here. I've got something to tell you which is a part of the history, and it's been fulfilled very recently. It's dropping down to verse 23. Verse 23. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. He mentions Jesus here. This was the part that they hadn't heard. Like I say, I don't think you could go into a synagogue in the United States or Israel these days and suddenly jump to your feet and preach, pre preach Jesus. But back then it was possible. Uh, verse 29. I'm going to read a little bit more in this chapter. Verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled everything that was written concerning him, Christ, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. And then a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
dropping down to verse 36. David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with the fathers and saw corruption. So that psalm is not talking about David. It's talking about someone else who is to come from the lineage of David. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. His body didn't de decompose in the grave. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And then here in verse 39, I read a lot of scripture here, but I want to get to verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses would not justify you. You're justified through Jesus Christ a very definitive statement. And of course, you and I are ju justified through Jesus Christ. That's what Christ does for us. A number of years ago, I had to take a class, um, actually it was across town here, at a, a seminary based here in Dallas, and there was a very noted New Testament professor. And he was one of these people who, um, some, let's put it this way, some theologians are very quick to see contradictions in the scripture. The scripture says this here, and the scripture says this there, and you can't really harmonize it, it's not possible. This particular gentleman, uh, who was, uh, I think, quite well published, he, did, he said that there are three Pauls. The Apostle Paul has three identities. The one in the book of Acts, the other one when he preached to the Jews, and the other one when he preached to the non-Jews. And I've often thought about that. Poor Paul, you know, he probably needed a shrink. Couldn't figure out what he believed three Pauls, and he gives different messages all over the place. What a model. He couldn't figure it out, especially on the subject of justification. Romans 2, verse 13. Romans 2, verse 13. What did Paul believe about justification? What are we to believe about justification? Romans 2, verse 13. Just interrupting the context here. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Doers of the law will be justified. And then just over the page, Romans 3, verse 20, Romans 3, verse 20, Paul says something, and poor Paul, he really did need his shrink, because look what he says here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, no flesh justified by law-keeping. So what about justification? What does Paul say about this? Romans chapter 5. Let's keep going in the book of Romans just a little bit. Romans chapter 5. And let's pick it up in verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6. You know, brethren, when we read through some of these things that Paul wrote in this uh, book of Romans, Romans is said to be the statement of Paul's theology. But you and I have a great advantage, and that is that in God's church, we keep the holy days. And as we go through the annual cycle of holy days, we can understand a lot more about this process of justification and the whole chain of events that leads to salvation as part of God's family. Romans 5 and verse 6. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So what he did was unusual and exceptional. 
But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That, of course, is one of the reasons why Church of God people don't have crosses on the walls of their homes. A couple of reasons. First of all, the cross is probably not an accurate emblem anyway. It doesn't appear to have been, you know, a T-shaped instrument. It appears to have been more of a, of a uh, vertical. But also, right, what it says right here in verse 10, what we just read, we're saved by his life and we look forward to that salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. Justification by his blood, salvation by his life. Spring holy days, fall holy days. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. So we come to the spring, we come to the Passover, we gratefully acknowledge what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, something we can't do on our own. We take the Passover, we acknowledge his sacrifice, we acknowledge that he's justified you, that he's justified me. He makes it possible for us to walk in newness of life. And then, of course, a few weeks later, seven weeks later approximately, we come to the festival of Pentecost when God gives a little bit of his life essence to you and to me so that we can walk differently. We keep the Passover, and then, of course, we keep seven days of unleavened bread. God's part in the process and our part in the process. You and I are New Co Covenant Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. We acknowledge that we're justified through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we come to the next holy day, the Feast of Trumpets, in which we look forward to life from him, life being given to us through Jesus Christ. And did you ever stop to think that the Feast of Trumpets has a different meaning for us from the meaning it has for the world? What does it mean for the world? For the world, it means the return of Jesus Christ. Visibly, every eye will see him, and the course of events in the world is going to change dramatically. For us, it means the granting of that gift that we know is promised. The Feast of Trumpets, life from him. But the point here is that we can't just be justified and then not move on. Justification is the beginning of the process. Justification is what allows you to get your Microsoft Word document just the way you want it to look. It allows you to come close to God and then to begin walking a different way of life. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But we don't stop. We keep walking. Now, of course, when we think about the subject of justification, I think it's a subject maybe we don't talk about all that much in the Church of God. And it's a very important subject. Uh, we stop and we think about it and we realize that there are those out there who use this term and put an emphasis in it and they lead into a message of do nothing, 
Christianity. Do nothing Christianity. There's a lot of discussion of the subject of justification and the subject of faith in the New Testament. You ever stop to ask yourself, I've been thinking about this recently, this whole concept of having faith in Jesus and then just carrying on as if nothing had happened. If you could get in a time capsule and go back to the first century and ask Jews in the first century what it, what it would have meant to confess belief in Messiah, to have faith, and was that concept of do nothing religion even present back then? I don't think so. I think the concept of confessing belief in God implied follow through. So let's take a look at this. What does the New Testament say about this? Because again, some commentators say there's a contradiction here. Paul and James, Paul and James, the great heavyweight theological contest, and out they come out of their two corners and they begin to fight it out. So justification by faith or justification by works. Romans chapter four, Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four. Paul is making a point here and a very important one. How are we justified? We're justified by faith, Romans four verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by things that he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scriptures say? Now this is quoted from uh, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You remember the scene. We're not gonna go back there. God brings him outside, he says, look up at the stars. So Abraham turns his head upward and he looks at the stars and God tells, to him, tells him, this is what your offspring is gonna be like. And it must have you know, boggled his mind. Well, this is impossible. She's too old, I'm too old. And then the scripture goes on as we just read, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Sometimes God specializes in the impossible, doesn't he? Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You've done th something for someone and you've got to be paid for it. But what's the cost of justification? Verse five, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And Paul goes on to talk about Abraham being justified before the time that he was circumcised. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. Christian justification from the sacrifice of his blood, as we just read in Romans chapter five. Now let's drop down a little bit here in Romans uh, chapter four to verse 13. Romans four, verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was given certain promises. The entire legal system was not even given yet. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You can't earn the promises through the law because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
The law illustrates what sin is. It shows you where you've gone wrong. It shows you how you've got to replenish your tank, as we heard in the sermonette. Verse 16, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I made you a father of many nations. Paul is doing here what he often did, trying to knit together different branches of the church, different nationalities, the Jews and the non-Jews. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Just as Abraham came outside and God made him look up at the stars, he said, you're gonna have offspring as numerous as this. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and not being weak in the faith, in faith he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. It says that he was 99 years old when Sarah conceived. He was about 100 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also to, able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans describes Abraham as the father of the faithful. He had this amazing experience being brought outside and being told, no, the story is not over. You're gonna have the son of promise. Our God specializes in the impossible. He likes to do those things. We know he's done that in our lives as well. Uh, verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Verse 25, he was raised because of our justification. It's actually an ongoing process. He was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God, the Father, and that is there for our justification. I'm going to quote from Mike Bennett's article. Again, you can find this on Life, Hope, and Truth. It's a good article. What is living faith? What kind of faith was it that Abraham had that justified him? What is living faith? Living faith is the kind of faith God wants us to have. What is living faith? How do we receive faith? How do we demonstrate and grow in living faith? How do we avoid having a dead faith? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm gonna read certain parts of it from, he quotes from Hebrews chapter 11, but I'll drop down to uh, getting beyond Hebrews 11 verse six. We grow in faith by studying the Bible and seeing what God has done in the past, what he promises for the future. It requires that we diligently seek him and strive to be like him. But can we just work up faith or will ourselves to have faith? Where does faith first come from? According to the Bible, how does it save us? The apostle Paul wrote about the awesome gifts God has given to those who follow in Jesus' steps. And then it quotes Galatians 2 verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse, uh, even the seed of faith is God's gift. Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The next verse causes some confusion, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, verse 9. No amount of works can earn us forgiveness or any of the gifts of God. They come from his grace and his mercy. But does that mean that good works are not an important part of the Christian life? Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Living faith, it's a very good description of our way of life. It is living faith, and I recommend that article. All right, now, let's go to the other section of the New Testament that talks about how we are justified. Are we justified by faith, or are we justified by works? Let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I remember at Ambassador College in general epistles class, the man who taught the class went through this, I think, reasonably thoroughly, and uh, I learned quite a bit from this. James has some things to say about justification as well. Some would conclude James and Paul are irreconcilable, but let's take a moment and think about this. James 2 verse 14. James asked the following question, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what use is it? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When you read what James has to say about justification by works in James 2, and what Paul has to say about justification by faith in the book of Romans, and you read them closely and you begin to get the impression that the challenges coming against the true faith were really quite different challenges. But let's keep on reading. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Fine, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Doesn't place us in terribly good company if we have that kind of belief. But don't you want to know, oh foolish man, empty-headed man, that faith without works is dead? We quote it a lot. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Don't you see that faith was working together with his works and his by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Wait a second, didn't we just read that in Romans? Wasn't it the same quotation? Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. James is quoting it to highlight the fact if you have, if you have faith, you do something. The apostle Paul quoted the same scripture to say you can't be justified by your works. He was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Paul and James, we got a big problem here. We need to appoint a subcommittee. We need to appoint a study group and get it figured out. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Verse 25, Rahab the harlot justified by works. She received the messengers and sent them out another way. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. When you take time to look at these two passages, which some say are an absolutely irre irreconcilable contradiction, think about it for a moment. Think about it. 
The Apostle Paul is facing down a set of challenges against the true faith. And the challenge boils down to this. It's a kind of a spiritual pride. I think we can understand it in God's church a little more clearly if we imagine the following scene. Coming in before God, in God's presence, and saying, God, you've got to accept me. Look at all the things that I've done. I rest every week on the Sabbath day. I'm faithful to my spouse. I've never killed anybody. I treat people with kindness. I tithe. I do all of these other good things. You've got to accept me for everything that I've done. When we think about that, and then we think about the Pharisee, you remember the Pharisee and the publican? I put that in my notes this morning and realized this is relevant. The Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18. You've got these two fellows who, you get the story of it, the Pharisee who says, you know, uh, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like other people. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And he's kind of beating his chest and saying, I'm such a righteous individual. And then Jesus talks about the publican who hangs his head in shame and says, God, be merciful to be a sinner. And it uses the word justification. Which one is more justified? So what is Paul combating when he says that we're justified by faith and not by our works? If it's our works that earn anything, we don't earn much of anything. Not in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul is combating a kind of a spiritual pride, just like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I'm so righteous, God, you're obligated. And Paul says, no, God is not obligated to do anything of the kind. God gives you your justification as a free gift through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Apostle James is they're kind of back to back. They stand back to back in defense of the true faith. And James is saying, okay, you believe things? All kinds of people believe things. It's one thing to believe things. It's another thing to act on things. We can have intellectual assent to something. We can believe something intellectually with no follow through. And James says, all you got is intellectual assent. It counts for very little. I want to quote a little bit. I'm not much of a fan of uh, Bible commentaries, but William Barclay, uh, in his commentary on the general epistles in the book of James, actually has some pretty good comments here. He's commenting on James chapter 2, uh, and I'll read just a little bit of it. And for Dora, who's up in the, uh, uh, in the trans translating booth, I'm on page 72. You might have William Barclay's commentaries at home. They're quite useful. Uh, Barclay has some interesting things there. James 2, he says, it's a passage which we must take as a whole before we look at it in parts. It's so often used in an attempt to show that James and Paul were completely at variance. It's apparently Paul's emphasis that a man is saved by faith alone and that deeds do not come into the process at all. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, because by works of the law no one shall be justified. It's often argued that James is not simply differing from Paul, but he's flatly contradicting him. This is a matter we must investigate, says Barclay. And then on the next page, he says, the fact remains that James reads as if he were at variance with Paul. In spite of everything that we've said, Paul's main emphasis is upon grace and faith, and James upon action and works. But this must be said, what James is condemning is not Paulinism, but a perversion of it. The essential Pauline position in one sentence was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But clearly the significance we attach to this demand will entirely depend on the meaning we attach to believe. 
There are two kinds of belief. And again, I've often wondered, what did people in the first century believe, understand with the use of the word belief? Did they think of something, just an intellectual assent and nothing more? There is belief which is purely intellectual, Bartley says. For instance, I believe that the square on the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle equals the sum of the squares on the other two sides. And if I had to, I could prove it. But it makes no difference to my life and living. I accept it, but it has no effect upon me. There is another kind of belief. I believe that five and five make ten, and therefore I will resolutely refuse to pay more than ten pence for two five-penny bars of chocolate. I take that fact not only into my mind, but into my life and action. What James is arguing against is the first kind of belief, the acceptance of a fact without allowing it to have any influence upon life. The devils are intellectually convinced of the existence of God. They, in fact, tremble before him, but their belief does not alter them in the slightest. What Paul, was, what Paul held was the second kind of belief. For him to believe in Jesus meant to take that belief into every section of life and to live by it. And then over the page, he's got another interesting comment. James begins with the professing Christian, the man who claims to be already forgiven and in a new relationship with God. Such a man, James rightly says, must live a new life for he is a new creature. He's been justified. He must now show that he's sanctified. With that, Paul would have entirely agreed. And then he goes on to say, I think this is rather well said, the fact is that no man can be saved by works, but equally no man can be saved without producing works. We have two apostles here. They're back to back. One is saying, if you in your spiritual pride think that you've earned your way into God's favor, you got it all wrong. And I assume that there must have been someone, some there in Rome who interpreted it that way. And the other one is saying, if you assume that your intellectual assent to something without any follow-through makes you into a Christian, you've got it all wrong. The two of them stand back to back in defense of the true faith. I just want to comment briefly uh, on, uh, no, let's, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you he made alive which were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead in your sins if you don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then move on. It's that justification that makes it possible for people to move forward. It's an ongoing process. It happens for you and me every day. We're justified. We're justified on a regular basis. 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, Verses 9 and 10. Here's a scripture that we read at the Passover. 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, let's read the first couple of verses in the next chapter. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's ongoing. So a question, 
When was the last time you asked God, you thank God for having justified you through Jesus Christ? It's an important question. It's an important part of the chain of salvation. The whole process of salvation is something that we can understand through the holy days. Ongoing justification, holy justification, unearned, an essential link in the process of salvation. As we go through the annual holy days, we come to the Passover every year in the spring, and we accept the gift that God has given us, the gift of forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, what follows? Seven days of unleavened bread. We don't just take the Passover and then stop. It's the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process, the justification that takes place. And then our response. And then we come to the festival of Pentecost when God pours out of his spirit and gives us a little part of the life essence that is of God himself. And then finally, we get to the Feast of Trumpets. Finally, we get to the Feast of Tabernacles. We get to the Feast of Trumpets and the return of Jesus Christ. And he gives us that unearned gift of life in God's kingdom. It's one chain. It begins with justification. Romans chapter 8, wrap it up here. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. There's so much that we can understand about this entire process and about what it is that God does for us through Jesus Christ because we keep God's holy days. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. If it's predestined, there would be a group of people in the name of Jesus Christ standing before God and serving him to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The one who began the process granting us justification through his son, Jesus Christ, completes it with our part, with God's part, with the contribution of Jesus Christ as he allows us to stand before him and eventually to inherit the gift of eternal life that he holds out for us. Good afternoon, happy Sabbath to everybody. I just wonder about the sequence of the um, hymns before I get up to speak, God will see us through. <laughs> That's often how I feel before I teach my classes. God will see me through. And I would like to assure everybody as a witness to the fact that Mr. Meeker did speak at the etiquette dinner. In fact, I think he spoke in English but we had a very good etiquette dinner. Good afternoon, welcome to everybody. I know we've got some visitors here in town. It was a little different when we've got people seated upstairs. We have five weeks to go for a Foundation Institute. It's amazing how quickly time goes, but we are approaching the end of this rather unusual school year, which began in January and goes until mid-August. Graduation is on August 15th. And of course, then we have a rather quick turnaround with the ministerial conference in the middle. 
Uh, we uh, are beginning right at the end of August. I believe that's uh, August 29th for our orientation. We have 14 that we've applied, uh, we've accepted so far, and applications are still open. However, we are uh, probably at about our capacity on housing. So technically, the applications are open, but uh, housing is uh, probably not available. So uh, we don't know if anyone else would express interest at this point. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, Please keep in mind all of the travels coming up in the fall. There's a lot to come up and a number of ministers are hoping to undertake international travel once again. Uh, things open and close with regard to the coronavirus uh, in different places. I'm hoping to get to the Dominican Republic for the first time in two years. I should be there for a Feast of Trumpets. Uh, if you check the calendar for this year, Feast of Trumpets is on a Tuesday, I believe. Uh, Monday is Labor Day, so it's an unusual weekend. It's Sabbath, Sunday, Labor Day, then Feast of Trumpets. So I'm hoping to get out to uh, our little group in the Dominican Republic, and there are a couple of uh, individuals there expressing interest in the church and perhaps in being baptized, so we'll see how all that goes. Uh, my own plans call for me to go to El Salvador for the first half of the feast and Peru for the second half of the feast, and I keep checking on the internet about getting between the two countries. And um, I wonder if any of you have been through this in the last couple of weeks, but the flight schedules are changing from day to day, especially some of the other airlines, perhaps not so much the US-based airlines, but the flight schedules keep on changing. Over the last month or so, I've gotten online and thought, oh, that's how I'm gonna get between the two countries. And a day or two later, that particular flight is gone. So uh, I'm probably not the only one going through that experience. So prayers that everything would go well uh, as we approach the uh, fall holy days and the people, ministers and members would be able to travel easily would be, would be appreciated. And of course, that we would all stay in good health. Brethren, I have a question for you this afternoon. And my question is this. Uh, I'm going to talk about a subject that is used a lot by theologians and mentioned in the Bible, but perhaps not fully understood by us. What is justification? And why is justification necessary? What does justification mean for you and me? It sounds like one of these rather vague terms, theological. Uh, it sounds almost uh, uh, as if uh, in some ways it's almost a kind of abrogation of God's way of life. What does, but what does it mean? The Bible uses that term. The basic problem is outlined in the book of Isaiah, and that is Isaiah 59. Let's begin there. Isaiah 59. Justification. Why do we have to be justified? Why do the scriptures talk about it? Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Rather well-known verse. Verse 1 tells us that God hears our prayers, but verse 2 Isaiah says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, of course, this was to ancient Israel. This was not written initially to the church, but still there is an important point here. And that, human, that is that human beings are human beings. We have a physical nature, a carnal nature, a nature that is sinful. We struggle with sin. Isaiah 64, verse 6, over the page, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Isaiah tells us that our righteousnesses 
are, there's an interesting description here, Isaiah 64 verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. A very poetic and a very colorful way of describing the human condition. The human condition is just that. It's human. It's sinful. We're just completing our study of the book of Ezekiel at Foundation Institute, and I won't go back there, but I'll reference the passage in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we've got Ezekiel online, of course, in FI Online, there's a wonderful vision, a very uh, descriptive vision of the book of, in the book of Ezekiel where he's, he, God shows him inside the temple in Jerusalem and he sees everything that's going on. And then in this vision, God's throne depicted on a kind of a platform. Uh, I imagine you've read that section of scripture. We're not gonna go all the way through it, but God's throne is depicted on a platform and God begins to take off and depart. And he goes eastward over toward Jericho. And in this spiritual vision, Ezekiel is shown that God is removing his presence from Jerusalem. Our God does not coexist with sin. So, why is justification necessary? Let's look at a few Old Testament scriptures before we go to the New Testament, which is where I'd like to spend most of the time. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. It is, of course, the chapter with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, but I'm not going to read the Ten Commandments. I want to read what follows the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. Paul read this, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are given by God and look at the reaction of the people. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. It was dramatic, it was scary. The mountain shook, smoke came off it as God gave these Ten Words, cardinal points of his law. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. They were scared, understandably so. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We're scared to death. Here is a righteous God, a perfect God, a sinless God, and we're the people of Israel and we're in his presence and it scares us to hear his voice. And of course, from that point forward, Moses' role becomes very important because apart from the Ten Commandments, Moses is the mediator for all of it. Every bit of the law, with the exception of the Ten Commandments, comes from God through Moses, or in some cases, from God through Moses and Aaron. Uh, then Moses' response here in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses' life is a study of him by itself. I'm sure there's at least one sermon there, maybe more than one. But the point being at this section, they couldn't stand in God's presence. They couldn't stand in his presence. They were scared. They heard his voice, but it frightened them. It wasn't just specific sins. It wasn't just a checklist. It was their sinful nature. It was that they were a physical people. And of course, the history is the history. You know the history of, the, uh, of ancient Israel. It didn't end well, did it? Although there's yet more to come. 
but it's a problem of sin. Sin is the problem. How do human beings who are physical, who are by their nature sinful, uh, come into the presence of God? Now, I want to look at a couple more of Old Testament scriptures before coming to the New Testament, because, of course, this is one of the things that changes drastically with the first coming of Jesus Christ with regard to the church. The whole framework changes. But let's look at Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, because I think this merits some explanation here. Leviticus 4 and verse 20. This is in the section about the ceremonial law. There's a series of offerings, animal sacrifices here. And actually, I was asked a question on this a number of years ago. Um, Leviticus 4 verse 20 is where I'd like to draw your attention. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering, thus he shall do with it. The priest shall make atonement for them. The priest brings the bull and makes atonement for them, for the people, and it shall be forgiven them. Ever thought about that? Let's read Leviticus 4 verse 26, a few verses down. He shall burn the fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, the sinning Israelite, concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. And the same thing in verse 31, Leviticus 4, verse 31. He removes the fat of this particular offering. The fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest makes atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And it says essentially the same thing again in verse 35. And then it says essentially the same thing in Leviticus 5 and verse 10. What does that mean? And we read in the New Testament about our sins being forgiven through Jesus Christ, and of course, that's true. There's a word used here for atonement, and it's a word that we're all familiar with. Every year in the fall, we get to that holy day that comes between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles, very, very important holy day, which in English is referred to as the Day of Atonement. Now, you know what it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it is Yom Kippur, or Yom HaKippurim. And it's the same word that's used here in Leviticus chapter 4, kiper. It's the same word. I found an interesting quotation about this particular word, a study. It's about the Day of Atonement, and it's from a Jewish source. Let me give you the source before I begin reading it here. It's uh, www.hebrewversity.com, front slash deeper Hebrew meaning Yom Kippur. I'm going to read it to you. What is the deeper Hebrew meaning of Yom Kippur? Today at sunset will be the 10th of the Hebrew month of Tishri. And this signifies the beginning of the holiest day of the, new, of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. It is customary to translate Yom Kippur as a day of atonement. And it comes from the following biblical verse. And then this article quotes from Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm in verse 26, the 10th day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. There's a holy convocation. You afflict yourselves and you present an offering to the Lord. It's a day of atonement. And then the article goes on to say the initial Hebrew meaning of the root kiper, K-P-R or kof, pei, resh in the Hebrew, which Yom Kippur comes from, actually means to cover and can be found in the original Hebrew name for the mercy seat, 
of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that mercy seat, seat that went on top with the two angels with their wings held out, the Ark of the Covenant called in the Hebrew Bible kaporet or covering. So when we read about atonement in that section of the sacrificial law, the connotation is covering. Continuing with this article, the concept of covering in biblical Hebrew can be understood also in an abstract way as covering sins, meaning to grant atonement. Precisely as the English name for the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and sheds light on the decision to translate into English the Hebrew word kaporet, the covering of the ark, as mercy seat. Yom Kippur, 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 covering, removal of sin by covering. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews has a lot to say about this. This is one of these things that change in New Testament times. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. The book of Hebrews is wonderful. I love the book of Hebrews. I, uh, I know Mr. Johnson covers it uh, thoroughly at Foundation Institute. It's one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews keeps on saying the new covenant is better. The New Testament arrangement is better. It's higher. It compares with the old arrangement. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. This was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, the system was still going on, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Isn't that an interesting statement? You brought an animal sacrifice and it didn't make you perfect with regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation the time of the institution of the new covenant, the founding of the church through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, same chapter, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, Hebrews uses that term over and over again, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a strong statement and worth thinking about. Verse 15, and for this reason he, Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, just like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, although of course it functions differently. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There's a promise under the new covenant. And dropping down again in this same chapter to verse 24, Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, an allusion to the day of atonement. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Allusions to a lot of holy days there. Of course, that's an allusion to the Feast of Trumpets, and we'll come to that momentarily. 
The Feast of Trumpets, in one sense, means something rather different for you and me than it does for the world. But let's keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10, where we get an even more definitive statement. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, the law foreshadows those ceremonies, those animal sacrifices. There was a typology there. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? It would have been done only once if they had been that effective, but they were not, of course. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then this enormously definitive statement here in verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Christ's sacrifice takes away sins. It cleanses out the conscience inside out. It gives people a new start. It has to do with justification. So I was looking around on the internet as I was doing a little bit of thinking and reading about this sermon and looking for material on the subject of justification. And you can imagine if you go onto the internet and you look for a search on justification, you come up with probably hundreds and hundreds of pages, lots of them. And a lot of it not that helpful and you've got to begin sifting out wheat and chaff. And then I suddenly realized there's a very good website that serves as a very good source of information on things biblical and things theological. It's called Life, Hope, and Truth. And in a sense, we're all part of it. Now, I wonder how many have read all the articles on Life, Hope, and Truth. I used to read them all when I was on the doctrine committee, but there are now some there that I, I haven't read. Uh, justification. Justification, article by John Foster, pastor of the Church of God Worldwide Association, titled, What is Justification? on Life, Hope, and Truth site. Definition, what is justification? The New Testament was preserved in the Greek language, and justification is translated from one of two Greek words. The first is dikaiosis. This word, quote, denotes the act of pronouncing righteous, justification, acquittal. Its precise meaning is determined by that of the verb dikaio, to justify, signifying the establishment of a person as just by acquittal from guilt. Quoting from Vine's expository dictionary of the Old and New Testament words. The other Greek word for justification is dikaioma. Vine says this word, quote, is a declaration that a person or a thing is righteous. The definition further signifies, quote, a sentence of acquittal by which God acquits men of their guilt. Acquittal, release. These Greek words mean that when God acquits and absolves us of all blame and guilt for our sins, we become just and innocent in his sight. Justification comes as a result of God's initiative toward us through his grace and by our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Life, Hope, and Truth article, What is Justification? Now, the New Testament mentions justification. I think it's actually that particular word is used, I think, four times in that form in the New King James Version, I believe about seven times in the NRSV Version. But the New Testament speaks of justification as an essential step in the process of salvation. What is justification? How do we conceive of it? Perhaps the most common um, illustration of what justification is for you and me 
It comes when we're sitting at our desks. I'm guessing most of us in this room, even if we don't type documents as part of our work, we type documents when we're sitting at home and we use a word processing process, word processing system. It used to be, what was it? I forget the old one that they used to have. Uh, Microsoft Word is ubiquitous these days. And when you sit down to type up your document, what do you do? You justify the margins. Do you want it left justified? You want it right justified? Well, you kind of stretch it out and you're justified on both sides. And it's a small illustration of what justification is for us coming close to how we come into the presence of a holy and perfect God and we can stand in his presence. Just as you left justify your document or you right margin justify your document. How you come into that presence of God. There's a very important statement here from the Apostle Paul. When he began to go out to preach the gospel, and of course, as you know, in the book of Acts, he began to preach the gospel, first of all, to the Jewish people. Book of Acts is very interesting. You begin reading about uh, the gospel going to the Jewish people. And even at the end of the book of Acts, <coughs> the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions are still identified as Jews. But he begins to take the message of the gospel <coughs> out to his people, the Jewish people. And on his first evangelistic tour, many of the Bibles refer to it as a missionary journey. Evangelistic tour is a better term. In preaching to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 13, let's turn there, Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul had something very firm and definitive to say about Christian justification. Acts 13, I'm going to read quite a few verses here. He's out on this evangelistic tour. He begins as he always did in the synagogue, not always, you get to the end of the book of Acts and that it's sort of the door, it's kind of closed at that point. But in the early part of the book of Acts, he begins with the Jews and the others who are non-Jewish but who come into the fellowship of the synagogues. Acts 13 and verse 14. Acts 13 verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, Asia Minor, Turkey, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent, said, to them, said to them, sent to them, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I've always found this interesting, because this doesn't happen in a synagogue service today. Judaism has changed a lot from the first century. I don't think you can go into a synagogue service today and just say, oh, I've got a word of, of wisdom. I've got something I'd like to share with everybody. It doesn't work that way. Judaism became much more scripted in the interim. But anyway, Paul is invited to say something. Have you got a word of exhortation? Verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people uh, who, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And he goes through much of the history. He did this often, you know the history. But I've got something to tell you here. I've got something to tell you which is a part of the history and it's been fulfilled very recently. It's dropping down to verse 23. Verse 23. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a savior, 
Jesus, he mentions Jesus here. This was the part that they hadn't heard. Like I say, I don't think you could go into a synagogue in the United States or Israel these days and suddenly jump to your feet and preach, preach Jesus, but back then it was possible. Uh, verse 29, I'm gonna read a little bit more in this chapter. Verse 29, now when they had fulfilled everything that was written concerning him, Christ, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm. And then a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Dropping down to verse 36. David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with the fathers and saw corruption. So that Psalm is not talking about David, it's talking about someone else who is to come from the lineage of David. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. His body didn't de decompose in the grave. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And then here in verse 39, I read a lot of scripture here, but I want to get to verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses would not justify you. You're justified through Jesus Christ, a very definitive statement. And of course, you and I are ju justified through Jesus Christ. That's what Christ does for us. A number of years ago, I had to take a class, um, actually it was across town here, at a, a seminary based here in Dallas. And there was a very noted New Testament professor. And he was one of these people who, um, some, let's put it this way, some theologians are very quick to see contradictions in the scripture. The scripture says this here, and the scripture says this there, and you can't really harmonize it, it's not possible. This particular gentleman, uh, who was, uh, I think, quite well published, he, did, he said that there are three Pauls. The Apostle Paul has three identities. The one in the book of Acts, the other one when he preached to the Jews, and the other one when he preached to the non-Jews. And I've often thought about that. Poor Paul, you know, he probably needed a shrink. Couldn't figure out what he believed. Three Pauls, and he gives different messages all over the place. What a model. He couldn't figure it out, especially on the subject of justification. Romans 2, verse 13. Romans 2, verse 13. What did Paul believe about justification? What are we to believe? about justification. Romans 2 verse 13, just interrupting the context here. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Doers of the law will be justified. And then just over the page, Romans 3 verse 20, Romans 3 verse 20, Paul says something, and poor Paul, he really did need his shrink, because look what he says here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, no flesh justified by law-keeping. So, what about justification? What does Paul say about this? 
Romans chapter 5. Let's keep going in the book of Romans just a little bit. Romans chapter 5. And let's pick it up in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. You know, brethren, when we read through some of these things that Paul wrote in this uh, book of Romans, Romans is said to be the statement of Paul's theology. But you and I have a great advantage, and that is that in God's church, we keep the holy days. And as we go through the annual cycle of holy days, we can understand a lot more about this process of justification and the whole chain of events that leads to salvation as part of God's family. Romans 5 and verse 6. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So what he did was unusual and exceptional. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That, of course, is one of the reasons why Church of God people don't have crosses on the walls of their homes. There are a couple of reasons. First of all, the cross is probably not an accurate emblem anyway. It doesn't appear to have been you know, a T-shaped instrument. It appears to have been more of a, of a uh, vertical. But also, right, what it says right here in verse 10, what we just read, we're saved by his life and we look forward to that salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. Justification by his blood, salvation by his life. Spring holy days, fall holy days. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. So we come to the spring, we come to the Passover, we gratefully acknowledge what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, something we can't do on our own. We take the Passover, we acknowledge his sacrifice, we acknowledge that he's justified you, that he's justified me. He makes it possible for us to walk in newness of life. And then, of course, a few weeks later, seven weeks later approximately, we come to the festival of Pentecost when God gives a little bit of his life essence to you and to me so that we can walk differently. We keep the Passover, and then, of course, we keep seven days of unleavened bread. God's part in the process and our part in the process. You and I are New Co Covenant Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. We acknowledge that we're justified through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we come to the next holy day, the Feast of Trumpets, in which we look forward to life from him, life being given to us through Jesus Christ. And did you ever stop to think that the Feast of Trumpets has a different meaning for us from the meaning it has for the world? What does it mean for the world? For the world, it means the return of Jesus Christ. Visibly, every eye will see him, and the course of events in the world is going to change dramatically. For us, it means the granting of that gift that we know is promised. The Feast of Trumpets, life from him. But the point here is that we can't just be justified and then not move on. Justification is the beginning of the process. Justification is what allows you to get your Microsoft Word document just the way you want it to look. It allows you to come close to God and then to begin walking a different way of life. 
Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But we don't stop. We keep walking. Now, of course, when we think about the subject of justification, I think it's a subject that maybe we don't talk about all that much in the Church of God. But it's a very important subject. Uh, we stop and we think about it and we realize that there are those out there who use this term and put an emphasis in it and they lead into a message of do nothing, Christianity. Do nothing, Christianity. There's a lot of discussion of the subject of justification and the subject of faith in the New Testament. Have you ever stop to ask yourself, I've been thinking about this recently, this whole concept of having faith in Jesus and then just carrying on as if nothing had happened. If you could get in a time capsule and go back to the first century and ask Jews in the first century what it, what it would have meant to confess belief in Messiah, to have faith, and was that concept of do nothing religion even present back then? I don't think so. I think the concept of confessing belief in God implied follow through. So let's take a look at this. What does the New Testament say about this? Because again, some commentators say there's a contradiction here. Paul and James, Paul and James, the great heavyweight theological contest, and out they come out of their two corners and they begin to fight it out. So justification by faith or justification by works. Romans chapter four, Romans chapter four. Romans chapter 4. Paul is making a point here, and a very important one. How are we justified? We're justified by faith. Romans 4 verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by things that he did, he has something to boast about but not before God. What does the scriptures say? Now this is quoted from uh, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You remember the scene. We're not gonna go back there. God brings him outside, he says, look up at the stars. So Abraham turns his head upward and he looks at the stars and God tells, to him, tells him, this is what your offspring is gonna be like. And it must have you know, boggled his mind. Well, this is impossible. She's too old, I'm too old. And then the scripture goes on as we just read, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Sometimes God specializes in the impossible, doesn't he? Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You've done th something for someone and you've got to be paid for it. But what's the cost of justification? Verse five, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
And Paul goes on to talk about Abraham being justified before the time that he was circumcised. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. Christian justification from the sacrifice of his blood, as we just read in Romans chapter 5. Now let's drop down a little bit here in Romans uh, chapter 4 to verse 13. Romans 4 verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was given certain promises. The entire legal system was not even given yet. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You can't earn the promises through the law. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law illustrates what sin is. It shows you where you've gone wrong. It shows you how you've got to replenish your tank, as we heard in the sermonette. Verse 16, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I made you a father of many nations. Paul is doing here what he often did, trying to knit together different branches of the church, different nationalities, the Jews and the non-Jews. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Just as Abraham came outside and God made him look up at the stars, he said, you're gonna have offspring as numerous as this. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and not being weak in the faith, in faith he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. It says that he was 99 years old when Sarah conceived. He was about 100 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also to, able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans describes Abraham as the father of the faithful. He had this amazing experience being brought outside and being told, no, the story is not over. You're gonna have the son of promise. Our God specializes in the impossible. He likes to do those things. We know he's done that in our lives as well. Uh, verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Verse 25, he was raised because of our justification. It's actually an ongoing process. He was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God, the Father, and that is there for our justification. I'm going to quote from Mike Bennett's article. Again, you can find this on Life, Hope, and Truth. It's a good article. What is living faith? What kind of faith was it that Abraham had that justified him? What is living faith? Living faith is the kind of faith God wants us to have. What is living faith? How do we receive faith? How do we demonstrate and grow in living faith? How do we avoid having a dead faith? It's a good question, isn't it? 
I'm going to read certain parts of it from, he quotes from Hebrews chapter 11, but I'll drop down to uh, uh, getting beyond Hebrews 11 verse 6. We grow in faith by studying the Bible and seeing what God has done in the past, what he promises for the future. It requires that we diligently seek him and strive to be like him. But can we just work up faith or will ourselves to have faith? Where does faith first come from, according to the Bible? How does it save us? The Apostle Paul wrote about the awesome gifts God has given to those who follow in Jesus' steps. And then it quotes Galatians 2, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse, uh, even the seed of faith is God's gift. Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The next verse causes some confusion, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, verse 9. No amount of works can earn us forgiveness or any of the gifts of God. They come from his grace and his mercy. But does that mean that good works are not an important part of the Christian life? Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Living faith, it's a very good description of our way of life. It is living faith, and I recommend that article. All right, now, let's go to the other section of the New Testament that talks about how we are justified. Are we justified by faith, or are we justified by works? Let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I remember at Ambassador College in General Epistles class, the man who taught the class went through this, I think, reasonably thoroughly, and uh, I learned quite a bit from this. James has some things to say about justification as well. Some would conclude James and Paul are irreconcilable, but let's take a moment and think about this. James 2 verse 14. James asked the following question, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what use is it? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When you read what James has to say about justification by works in James 2, and what Paul has to say about justification by faith in the book of Romans, and you read them closely and you begin to get the impression that the challenges coming against the true faith were really quite different challenges. But let's keep on reading. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Fine, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Doesn't place us in terribly good company if we have that kind of belief. But don't you want to know, oh foolish man, empty-headed man, that faith without works is dead? We quote it a lot. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Don't you see that faith was working together with his works and his by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Wait a second, didn't we just read that in Romans? Wasn't it the same quotation? Genesis chapter 15, 
Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. James is quoting it to highlight the fact if you have, if you have faith, you do something. The Apostle Paul quoted the same scripture to say you can't be justified by your works. He was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Paul and James, we got a big problem here. We need to appoint a subcommittee. We need to appoint a study group and get it figured out. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Verse 25, Rahab the harlot justified by works. She received the messengers and sent them out another way. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. When you take time to look at these two passages, which some say are an absolutely irre irreconcilable contradiction, think about it for a moment. Think about it. The Apostle Paul is facing down a set of challenges against the true faith. And the challenge boils down to this. It's a kind of a spiritual pride. I think we can understand it in God's church a little more clearly if we imagine the following scene. Coming in before God, in God's presence, and saying, God, you've got to accept me. Look at all the things that I've done. I rest every week on the Sabbath day. I'm faithful to my spouse. I've never killed anybody. I treat people with kindness. I tithe. I do all of these other good things. You've got to accept me for everything that I've done. When we think about that and then we think about the Pharisee, you remember the Pharisee and the publican? I put that in my notes this morning and realized this is relevant. Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18. You've got these two fellows who, you get the story of it, the Pharisee who says, you know, uh, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like other people. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And he's kind of beating his chest and saying, I'm such a righteous individual. And then Jesus talks about the publican who hangs his head in shame and says, God, be merciful to be a sinner. And it uses the word justification. Which one is more justified? So what is Paul combating when he says that we're justified by faith and not by our works? If it's our works that earn anything, you don't earn much of anything. Not in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul is combating a kind of a spiritual pride, just like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I'm so righteous, God, you're obligated. And Paul says, no, God is not obligated to do anything of the kind. God gives you your justification as a free gift through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Apostle James is they're kind of back to back. They stand back to back in defense of the true faith. And James is saying, okay, you believe things? All kinds of people believe things. It's one thing to believe things. It's another thing to act on things. We can have intellectual assent to something. We can believe something intellectually with no follow through. And James says, all you got is intellectual assent. It counts for very little. I want to quote a little bit. I'm not much of a fan of uh, Bible commentaries, but William Barclay, uh, in his commentary on the general epistles in the book of James, actually has some pretty good comments here. He's commenting on James chapter 2, uh, and I'll read just a little bit of it, and for Dora, who's up in the, uh, uh, in the trans translating booth, I'm on page 72. You might have William Barclay's commentaries at home. They're quite useful. Uh, Barclay has some interesting things there. James 2, he says, it's a passage which we must take as a whole before we look at it in parts. 
It's so often used in an attempt to show that James and Paul were completely at variance. It's apparently Paul's emphasis that a man is saved by faith alone and that deeds do not come into the process at all. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, because by works of the law no one shall be justified. It's often argued that James is not simply differing from Paul, but he's flatly contradicting him. This is a matter we must investigate, says Barclay. And then on the next page, he says, the fact remains that James reads as if he were at variance with Paul. In spite of everything that we've said, Paul's main emphasis is upon grace and faith in James, upon action and works. But this must be said, what James is condemning is not Paulinism, but a perversion of it. The essential Pauline position in one sentence was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But clearly the significance we attach to this demand will entirely depend on the meaning we attach to believe. There are two kinds of belief. And again, I've often wondered, what did people in the first century believe, understand with the use of the word belief? Did they think of something, just an intellectual assent and nothing more? There is belief which is purely intellectual, Barclay says. For instance, I believe that the square on the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle equals the sum of the squares on the other two sides. And if I had to, I could prove it. But it makes no difference to my life and living. I accept it, but it has no effect upon me. There is another kind of belief. I believe that five and five make 10, and therefore I will resolutely refuse to pay more than 10 pence for two five penny bars of chocolate. I take that fact not only into my mind, but into my life and action. What James is arguing against is the first kind of belief, the acceptance of a fact without allowing it to have any influence upon life. The devils are intellectually convinced of the existence of God. They in fact tremble before him, but their belief does not alter them in the slightest. What Paul, was, what Paul held was the second kind of belief. For him to believe in Jesus meant to take that belief into every section of life and to live by it. And then over the page, he's got another interesting comment. James begins with the professing Christian, the man who claims to be already forgiven and in a new relationship with God. Such a man, James rightly says, must live a new life for he is a new creature. He's been justified. He must now show that he's sanctified. With that, Paul would have entirely agreed. And then he goes on to say, I think this is rather well said, the fact is that no man can be saved by works, but equally no man can be saved without producing works. We have two apostles here. They're back to back. One is saying, if you and your spiritual pride think that you've earned your way into God's favor, you got it all wrong. And I assume that there must have been some, some there in Rome who interpreted it that way. And the other one is saying, if you assume that your intellectual assent to something without any follow-through makes you into a Christian, you've got it all wrong. The two of them stand back to back in defense of the true faith. I just want to comment briefly uh, on, uh, no, let's, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter four. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians two. Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, and you he made alive which were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead in your sins 
if you don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then move on. It's that justification that makes it possible for people to move forward. It's an ongoing process. It happens for you and me every day. We're justified. We're justified on a regular basis. First John chapter one, first John chapter one, verses nine and 10. Here's a scripture that we read at the Passover. First John one, verses nine and 10. First John one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, let's read the first couple of verses in the next chapter. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's ongoing. So a question, when was the last time you asked God, you thank God for having justified you through Jesus Christ? It's an important question. It's an important part of the chain of salvation. The whole process of salvation is something that we can understand through the holy days. Ongoing justification, holy justification, unearned, an essential link in the process of salvation. As we go through the annual holy days, we come to the Passover every year in the spring, and we accept the gift that God has given us, the gift of forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, what follows? Seven days of unleavened bread. We don't just take the Passover and then stop. It's the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process, the justification that takes place. And then our response. And then we come to the festival of Pentecost when God pours out of his spirit and gives us a little part of the life essence that is of God himself. And then finally, we get to the Feast of Trumpets. Finally, we get to the Feast of Tabernacles. We get to the Feast of Trumpets and the return of Jesus Christ. And he gives us that unearned gift of life in God's kingdom. It's one chain. It begins with justification. Romans chapter eight, wrap it up here. Romans eight, verses 28 through 31. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. There's so much that we can understand about this entire process and about what it is that God does for us through Jesus Christ because we keep God's holy days. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He was predestined there would be a group of people in the name of Jesus Christ standing before God and serving him to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The one who began the process granting us justification through his son, Jesus Christ, completes it with our part, with God's part, with the contribution of Jesus Christ as he allows us to stand before him and eventually to inherit the gift of eternal life that he holds out for us.